So today we're going to be talking about this, another type of uh, sort of therapeutic intervention. This one is called dialectical behavioral therapy. I will explain more about what that name means as we go along. But I just wanted to let you know that that's sort of the full name, but it oftentimes goes by DBT, okay? Um, DBT, yeah. So as I was, as I sort of, I think I mentioned last Sunday, almost every one of these sort of different therapeutic schools of thought has a way of defining what it sees as the problem, like what it is about human nature that lends itself to sort of psychological disturbances, et cetera. And DBT is just the same. It also has sort of a definition of, of kind of what the problem is, like what is it that we're facing. Now, one thing to let you know about dialectical behavioral therapy is that it was originally um, designed and developed for a particular type of patient. And that is people who have a disorder called uh, borderline personality disorder. Has anybody ever heard of that? Okay. Yeah, the woman who developed di uh, dialectical behavioral therapy, her name is Marsha Linehan, and she's, I think, truly like a hero for psychologists in the last 20 to 30 to 40 years. The reason being that borderline personality disorder used to be considered almost impossible to treat, okay? When people would have a borderline personality disorder patient in their practice, that would be the person that they most really felt like they didn't have the confidence to treat them, they didn't know where to begin, um, and it was oftentimes a, sort of um, a scary experience even for the psychologist. The reason being that border, patients with borderline personality disorder are oftentimes at the highest risk for things like self-harming types of behaviors and also suicide. So, People who work with this particular group of patients are oftentimes feeling a lot of pressure and that the stakes are really high. So that's kind of the patient population that she developed this particular intervention for. Um, and let me kind of talk a little bit about what she sees as sort of the problem that people face. So first off, the problem is what she describes as biosocial in nature. What that means is that there are, uh, there are underlying biological factors that encounter a social system that is not able to support or compensate for them well, okay? Put differently, she says, what you have is you have a group of patients who, um, who manifest what she calls emotional dysregulation. I'm gonna tell you more about what that is in a, in a second, but very briefly right now, this is a group of people who really have a hard time with their emotions, okay? <clears throat> At the same time, they have typically been raised or lived in contexts that she describes as invalidating. That's a way of basically saying the people around whom they've lived or they've grown up with haven't really known how to help this person, okay? And for that reason, the environment has made the symptoms of the illness worse rather than better, okay? Now, what is emotional dysregulation? In a nutshell, it's high emotional vulnerability plus an inability to regulate emotions. I want you to think about how many people here have known one, you know, a little kid who will get so upset that they will pass out. Have you ever known it, a, kid, a little kid like that? Yeah. I mean, there are certain people who are just 
wired to be to just feel things much more intensely than other people do. You know, it has to do with sort of, you know, um, just the way the different sort of neurological systems work, okay? It's not anything that is their fault. It's just how they are, okay? At the same time, because they have um, just, just the sort of, they're emotionally very vulnerable, at the same time, they oftentimes have a difficulty, they have difficulty regulating their emotions. So on the one hand, it's like they're more emotional, they feel things more deeply than other people, but at the same time, they don't know what to do about those emotions that they feel so, that they feel so deeply. Emotional vulnerability a little bit more, so we're gonna drill down a little bit. So high sensitivity to emotional stimuli plus emotional intensity plus slow return to baseline. Basically what this all says is, People who have problems, who are emotionally vulnerable, they have emotions that come really quickly. Before they really had a chance to sort of be like, I'm getting upset, you know, let me do something about that. No, it's going to be, I'm upset. The emotions are extreme. They're not like sort of a typical experience of an emotion, you know, and at the same time, they're long lasting. So you can imagine when you've got somebody who's sort of, this is how they're wired, I mean, it really can be difficult for them to, you know, to, um, to learn this kind of skills to help regulate their emotions. People who work with borderline patients a lot of times talk about how the people around them will have the experience of they're walking on eggshells all the time because the person is just so emotionally intense, okay? Now, what is emotional regulation involved? This may sound kind of odd, but the first step is to actually learn how to experience and label emotions. When emotions come on so fast and so intensely, you kind of go into that emotion and you, you're not even really, if somebody were to say, what are you feeling? It would, might be obvious to the people around you that you're angry or sad or whatever, but the person themselves might be like, you know, I don't even know. So emotional regulation begins with the ability to experience the emotion and to name it. Parents train their kids on how to do this all the time, and it's really interesting to watch. A child will be crying and they'll say, use your words, right? There's a certain point at which they want the child to be able to begin to articulate what is the problem, okay? Well, that's, that's sort of the first step in learning how to regulate your emotions. The other thing is learning how to reduce emotionally relevant stimuli. This may sound totally obvious, but the reality is many of us don't do a very good job with this. And people who are really emotionally vulnerable need to get a lot better at this. When I say we don't do a good job at this, if you are a person like in our household where you have one member who loves watching CNN a lot, okay? <laughs> that's what I mean. It's like, that's like, you know, for some people who are very emotionally vulnerable, they could not have, I mean, it would be a really bad decision to have CNN going all the time because they'd be like, ah! You know? you know what I'm saying? So learning how to reduce emotionally relevant stimuli is, is important for emotional regulation. It's not all, let's put it this way, it's not all about how you respond. It's also what do you have in the environment to respond to, okay? Okay, what does emotional dysregulation look like? At its worst, it looks like crisis-generating behavior. Let me explain what that is like. People with borderline personality disorder oftentimes have these intense, very intense emotions, but they're in context where people do not understand how they feel. And it's not, the per it's not the people around them's fault, it's because 
This person has a genu is having a genuinely different emotional experience. So how do you create a situation where the people around you understand what you're going through? You create a crisis so that now they're along for the ride. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so at its worst, you've got a person who continuously goes from crisis to crisis because they're not feeling understood. The only way that they know how to have an experience where, uh, where they think other people are getting what's going on with them is when there's a crisis. Okay. Now, what is an invalidating environment? Okay, because remember, she said her theory is that it's biosocial in nature. It's partly the person's sort of emotional makeup, but it's also partly the environment in which they exist. An invalidating environment is any context in which a person suffering from emotional dysregulation is not able to learn the skills necessary to modulate their emotions. So going back to that example of the little kid, who gets so upset that they faint, okay? Like for example, my stepson went through a phase when he was a little kid where when he would cry, sometimes he'd cry so hard he would throw up, okay? Lots of little kids, are, they go through these periods in their lives where things just get so intense. Well, in a validating environment is an environment where that kind of emotional display and those feelings are validated, you can see you're upset, but then there's coaching as to how to learn how to regulate those those experiences and those feelings. An invalidating environment is where you have a real mismatch. You've got this person who's like totally sort of wired to be very emotional in a context that does not know how to give them the skills to be who, you know, to be them, to, to learn how to regulate their emotions because the people around them just don't have, don't share the same emotional um, experience. Does that make sense? It's very hard to teach someone how to handle an intense emotion if you're not a person who really deals with intense emotions. Okay? So for Marsha Linehan, part of what you find with borderline personality disorder patients is they're very emotional vulnerable, but they're also not skillful. They don't have the skills to learn how to or to be able to regulate their emotional lives. And it's not necessarily somebody's fault, it's just the, the reality. Okay, so just a quick example of an invalidating environment. A family with a child whose emotional makeup differs from that of other family members to the point that it is difficult for the parents, for example, to know how to teach the child the skills they need to learn how to regulate their emotions. You know, really calm parents, child who gets so upset they keel over. You know, that's a tough combination. Okay. Um, now, why learn about this particular sort of therapeutic intervention um, if you're not if you don't have borderline personality disorder? Well, I think there's a little bit of borderline personality disorder in all of us. Okay, all of us struggle with our emotions, and Linehan has just what she's done is she's worked with a patient population that really struggle. But many of the insights that she generated really do apply to all of us, okay? So we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, sort of what she recommends. And one of the things that's interesting about her approach, approach is that she describes it as, it, she talks about skills. So you're learning skills, okay? So it's not about making a decision, I'm going to stop feeling sad, you know, I'm going to stop getting so angry. It's not a decision. And it's not about sort of saying, like, um, you know, this is just who I am and there's nothing I can do about it. It's like, no, you can learn some skills to get better at handling this kind of stuff. 
first thing is, and this is going to seem obvious, but I think um, you know it's it's an important, and that is increase interpersonal skills, especially in conflictual situations. Like learn how to handle conflict better. If you have difficult time controlling your emotions, being in relationships where there's conflict that you don't know how to handle is obviously going to make them worse. Um, increase the ability to regulate unwanted emotions. So there's going to be skill building related to how do you change your sort of emotional mood. Um, increase ability to tolerate distress until change is forthcoming. This is a huge one, you know. Learning how to say like, okay, I'm going to put up with, I can put up with this for a while, you know. And then increase ability to experience and name emotions versus attempting to inhibit them. Strangely enough, borderline personality disorder, people with that particular disorder will oftentimes kind of go between two extremes. They'll sort of freak out about things or they'll do their best to absolutely not feel anything because they don't know how to be in that middle ground, okay? So, cognitive skills. Okay, now this is where we get into a little bit about talking about what she means by dialectical, okay? These are the kinds of skills that you want to you learn to, as a way of sort of changing how you think about things. You want to increase the capacity to think dialectically either by finding the middle way between two extremes or living with the paradox. Um, the which is better when question as opposed to the which is better period question. Okay. So think about a dialectical relationship as it's, there's two opposites. There's a thesis and then there's an antithesis. And the dialectical moment is when you find that synthesis. Okay? So for example, there's, there's, you, know, there's, you need to accept a problem. You need to acknowledge that a problem exists. You need to change the problem. You know? That paradox of being able to accept the problem that exists while at the same time working to change it, that's, that's kind of a key thing. That's sort of an example of dialectical thinking. I, had a, I actually did some work in this in a therapist situation, but um, the way it was explained to me is that um, you look at a, a situation like rain. Rain is bad because it mm -hmm. went wet, but rain is good. Right. So both of them at the same time. Right, exactly, exactly. So it's like getting away from that sort of like, it's all bad, it's all good, how do you sort of live with the fact that sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's good? You know what I mean? That rain can have these different kinds of meanings or you know, can have different experiences. The which is better when question as opposed to the which is better period question is, this has to do with recognizing that context matters. So the rain is better when, in certain contexts when it's been really dry. The rain is not better when, in context when there's been too much rain. You see what I'm saying? So it's not, it's not this, it doesn't have this fixed value. Another sort of cognitive skills that, um, that a dialectical behavioral thera therapist will work with people is increasing the capacity to employ mindfulness skills, okay? And this is like sort of core mindfulness skills ha have to do with things like being able to observe what's going on, naming and participating in what's there as opposed to being on autopilot. That's just like core mindfulness, like being in the moment, you know? Um, not getting lost in thoughts about what's going to happen, not getting lost in ruminations about things that have happened. She calls it the core house. These are, you know, learning how to employ a non-judgmental stance, you know, focusing on one thing at a time, focusing on what she calls efficacy as opposed to the right way of doing something, you know. So she's big on sort of getting clients to think about what works. Don't go for the perfect, you know. Don't go for what you think is the right way to do something. What is, what is actually going to work? 
okay? This is like, the, in some ways, the real core of what she talks about, and that is like learning emotional regulation, okay? And I'm gonna take you through a number of different skills that she works on, that she suggests working on with people. So identifying and labeling emotions, obviously that's, imp that's important. But what she means by that is this whole, really sort of fleshing out where it came from, for example. Trying to figure out well, what are the interpretations of events that supported the emotion, okay? So you're angry at yourself. Um, what prompted it? You think you made a mistake and you did something that made you look foolish in front of other people. Okay, well, you have made an interpretation that it made you look foolish in front of other people. You know, is that interpretation, is that, is that totally um, accurate? Um, looking at the physiological underpinnings of anger. So, you know, when we get angry, I can't remember if anger narrows our pupils or expands them, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of things that goes into anger in terms of, like, body posture, um, etc. Uh, any associated expressive behaviors. This basically means when you get when you got angry, what did you do? <laughs> did you freak out on someone? You know. Um, and then another key thing is, what impact did that anger have on your functioning? Like, what decisions did you make when you were angry? You know, what happened because you were angry? So yeah. So her her you know identifying labeling, labeling emotions goes well beyond just sort of saying I'm angry. It's really a deep dive into what you know into what that meant for you. This is another really good sort of emotional regulation skill, and that is identifying obstacles to changing behaviors. I think this is like a great set of questions. So she's assuming that when we have when we are emotional, that we're trying to communicate something through the emotion. So what is it that we're trying to communicate? You know, I think we all know, or hope, you know, probably have met people who, um, okay, maybe let me reframe this. We can imagine that there are people out there who might use displays of sadness to communicate something to someone else, okay? Um, so they're not gonna say what you said really bothered me. They're gonna burst into tears, you know? Um, how are you trying to influence or this should be, or control others through this emotion. Same sort of thing, the display of sadness. You know, you may be trying to influence or control somebody through that display of, of sadness. So it's, it's not, it's, you know, understanding the complexities of displays of emotions or even feelings, of, you know, even emotional feelings. This is another huge one. How is this emotion validating your perceptions of an event? Emotions are kind of like a feedback loop, right? It's like, you know, you're sad, and then you're just like, you know, then you begin to think, like, there's a reason to be sad, you know. Like, well, to what degree is your, the emotion that you're having, is it validating the way that you were thinking about the experience? One of the things that people talk about with borderline personality disorders, people with borderline personality disorder, is they often appear to be very manipulative, okay? Her point is that, to a certain extent, we're all doing this with emotion. We're all trying to communicate things, influence people, and the emotion is actually validating our interpretation of an event, an interpretation that might not actually be true, okay? So these, I think, are very powerful. And of course, you know, if, you're try if you use emotion to try and communicate, um, it's gonna be really hard for you to change because it's part of how you communicate, you know? You don't, you don't necessarily have the skills to communicate in a different way. 
Um, another great phrase she, used, she likes to use, she talks about emotion mind, okay? And this is another, like, again, this may seem totally obvious, but the question arises, do we actually do this? And that is part of how you regulate your emotions, like part of the skillful way of dealing with emotions is you reduce your vulnerability to emotion mind by taking care of yourself, you know? If you haven't had something to eat for like eight hours, you didn't get enough sleep, and maybe you're a little bit hungover, well, let's just see how well you're gonna be good, how, how, how well you're gonna handle irritation, okay? You know, or sadness or anything else for that matter. The other thing that I really love is this idea is you reduce vulnerability to emotion mind through promoting a sense of self-efficacy. By making, you know, when you feel as if you're kind of on top of things in your life, you're far more prone to be able to, um, to not kind of slip into that emotion mind. And when she talks about self-efficacy, she's not like saying, when you win the Nobel Prize, okay? <laughs> she's not talking about that. She's talking about things like, simple things like keeping up with your laundry. There's a way in which when we begin to sort of lose track of these little things, we begin to lose that sense that we are in control of our lives. Oh, wait a second. Then we're not going to be so convinced that maybe we can do something about our emotions either. Okay. You know, the other thing of self-efficacy is that, that sense of pursuing valued activities. You know? Okay. <laughs> this is when I was just like, I don't think I'm going to have to spend a lot of time on this. <laughs> Basically, it's like, you want to learn how to regulate your emotions? Do more emotionally positive things. <laughs> you know? Um, cultivate things that make you happy, you know, and in doing that, you will learn, you know, that will help you, um, you know, that is an emotional regulation skill in and of itself. Okay, this is also, I think, a really important thing, and that is increasing mindfulness of a current emotion. And the way she talks about it, she says, have the emotion, don't judge it. The reason why you have it, you don't judge it, is because once you start judging an emotion you have, then you get into what she calls these secondary emotions like guilt, anger, and anxiety. For example, if you get angry about something, then you judge the fact that you got angry. Now you feel guilty about being angry. Okay, so in addition to anger, you're feeling guilty about being angry. And then it could very well be that you take that another step where it's just like now that you feel guilty about being angry, now you need to validate the reason why or justify the reason why you were angry. See what I'm saying? And so then you become angry again. Or maybe what you do is because you feel guilty that you were angry, now you're angry at yourself in addition to being, you know, in addition to your primary sort of experience of anger, okay? So her thing is like, have the, have the emotion, sorry, not motion, it should be emotion. Have the emotion, don't judge it. Um, this is a great thing. This, this is really in line with our Christian beliefs, right? It's like, it's called taking opposite action, you know? So you're angry at someone. How do you dispel anger towards them? You know, and again, what she's not talking about here are sort of legitimate experiences of anger towards someone. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, people can hurt someone, and to be angry at that person is only appropriate. And in fact, one of the things she works on with patients and clients who have borderline personality disorder is helping them to discern when is it legitimate to like when is it legitimate to be angry at someone because a lot of times their emotions are so kind of out of control they have a hard time trusting when they're legitimately angry okay but 
In cases where it's just this emotion that's getting out of your control, one way of regulating it is to do the opposite of what the emotion suggests. This would be kind of like Jesus' advice to pray for your enemies, right? Do the opposite. Um, this is another great sort of part of her, um, of her kind of thinking through issues of, of sort of um, emotional vulnerability. And she calls this distress tolerance skills. And what it really means is it's to learn how to bear pain skillfully. So the idea is everybody's going to have hard experiences. And when she says pain, it could be physical, it could be emotional, whatever. Okay? But again, there's that word skillfully. You want to learn how to bear it skillfully. You don't want it to own you. Okay? So um, these are some examples of uh, skills or skills or exercises or practices that she, that she suggests, suggests teaching people, clients who have this diagnosis. The one thing is distraction. An example of that would be a comparison exercise. A comparison exercise is when you're feeling like, you know, I'm so upset, my life is the worst, okay? Part of the way you distract yourself from that sort of feeling is you say to yourself, are there people out there who have it worse than myself? You know what I mean? So you compare, you know, and from that, you begin to think about someone else's situation other than just your own, okay? Um, Self-soothing um, is anything that you do um, to, to really sort of soothe the self. I mean, think about, in this case, think about, for example, you've got a baby who's upset. Um, what are some things that you do with that baby? Bounce the baby. Bounce the baby, motion, right? Yeah. Okay, motion. Sorry. What else might you do with the baby? Feed it. Feed it, yeah. Feed it. Okay, exactly. <laughs> Feed it, change it, okay. But baby's been fed, baby's been changed. What are some other things? Things that you do that are soothing Sing. things. Sing. Singing, okay. Have you ever seen like a mother or been this yeah. mother yourself rubbing the back of the baby, right? Okay. So the bouncing is that repeated motion is soothing to people. They call that like self-medicating motion. When, you, like I used, I used to teach kids, and some of them would be very hyperactive, and I would say, "Well, you know, um, move your foot, you know, because if you jiggle your foot back and forth, for someone who's very hyperactive, that that can help them sit still, right? It's motion that's soothing. The lotion exercise just means that you know there's something just like that baby likes to have its back sort of stroked or rubbed. There's something about putting lotion on." that can be, that is just a very, um, it's a soothing, it's a self-soothing kind of thing, okay? Um, I love this, this next one is great too, improving the moment as a sort of a distress tolerance skill. What this means is you're in the moment, well, what do you do to improve it, you know? What can you pray for in that moment? What kind of meaning can you find in that moment? You know, how do you, how do you take that moment that feels so bad and experience it in a different way? Sort of a radical thing would be like taking a vacation, okay? <laughs> you definitely improve the moment in that case. But she also points to some of these spiritual practices that people can use to, um, to change, to change the sort of texture of the moment, okay? Like the, uh, the therapeutic school that we talked about last week, one of the things she thinks is very important is for people to be able to accept the distress that they're going through. Um, 
And she calls that choosing willingness as opposed to willfulness. There, we all find ourselves in situations sometimes where we're not going to be able to change. It won't change as fast as we want it to. You know, leaving that willfulness behind and becoming willing to sort of sit with it or live with it for a while. Um, I think this is a great definition of interpersonal effectiveness. Um, obtaining the changes one needs while keeping relationships, while keeping one's self-respect. <coughs> Let me unpack that a little bit. You can be in a situation where you can make the changes that you want, but then that is not going to be a relationship anymore. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you can push for changes in a relationship, and the person will be like, I'm out, okay? So you're not keeping the relationship. You can keep a relationship, but not keep your self-respect, right? You can keep your self-respect intact, but not keep the relationship. You know, you know what I'm saying? So in order, for, in order to be interpersonally effective, you've got to have kind of all these things together. That's the challenge, OK? And I like the fact that she says, obtaining changes one needs while keeping relationships, but then adds in the, the also important thing about the self-respect. The reason why she emphasizes keeping relationships is because um, people with borderline personality disorders oftentimes have very explosive relationships. And so they'll just sort of, things will just get too emotional and they just can't take it anymore. So being able to stay in relationship with someone is a, is, is a skill to, to be learned in some cases. Specific examples of this would be asking for what one needs, saying no, and coping with interpersonal conflict. Self-management skills, these are also important for people who are emotionally vulnerable and all of us, and that is they're needed to learn, maintain, and, um, to learn, maintain, and generalize new behaviors and inhibit undesirable behaviors. So this is, again, it's like, you know, we talk about self-management skills with little kids, right? And, you know, I think sometimes we also could stand to learn some self-management <laughs> skills even though we're not little kids anymore. Um, So examples of these skills, reinforcement versus punishment. Um, interesting sort of thing. What do you think drives change more, reinforcement or punishment? Reinforcement, absolutely. But a lot of people try to drive change through punishment. And I don't mean of other people. I'm talking about of themselves. What do you mean by reinforcement? Positive reinforcement. <clears throat> So for example, like um, say, uh, I'm gonna use something from like training dogs, okay? <laughs> so like when you're training dogs, like you know how they do like if your dog is a dog who really loves like food, it's like every when they're a puppy, they sit, they get a little piece of food, positive reinforcement. As opposed to they sit or they don't sit, smack them on the butt. They don't, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's something about how we learn that well, we positive, just, okay, yeah, yeah. I yeah. Sort of get it, but well think about like but how do you do that with yourself? That's my question. You, you emphasize the positive as opposed to beating yourself up for mistakes. Mm -hmm. you know? So for example, you need, some of this involves coming to recognize when you've done something successfully and then rewarding yourself for it. Okay. So for example, say, if, say the thing that gets you really, like gets you angry or whatever. You know, imagine whatever that is. And then your goal is, you know, I really want to learn to sort of control my irritation or my anger. 
you find yourself in a situation where you do that successfully, reward yourself. Okay? As opposed to you just snap at someone, you punish yourself. You know what I'm saying? I mean, most of us are much better at the punishing side of things than the rewarding. Because we notice when we mess up. We don't notice as much when we do something right. But it's like learning to find that balance is really important. You know, we need to recognize our own um, successes. Um, environmental control techniques, this is just basically like a kind of a technocratish way of saying, like, again, getting back to that whole thing of, you know, what is your environment like? You know, is your environment, they're sort of, in the Middle Ages, they used to talk about the macrocosm and the microcosm and how they reflected one another. The macrocosm could be um, like as big as the cosmos, or it could be your room, you know? But the point is that your environment, your external environment impacts your internal environment. I mean, this is what astrology is all about, right? Uh, the Middle Ages wasn't necessarily about taking things to that extreme, but there was a sense in which if you want to have an orderly inside, you create order outside of yourself. So that's sort of environmental control. Um, it may sound weird to talk about having issues with emotions using the language that you might see, for example, in addictions, sort of um, addictions therapy, like relapse management. But the reality is emotions are, can be almost sort of addictive habits that we get into. So it's like, how are you going to plan for that time when you, know, you lose your temper when you've been working on really controlling your temper, for example? Um, and I love this thing, the ability to tolerate limited progress. I mean, I think this is so important because oftentimes we expect and want changes to happen much faster than realistically is possible. So, so being you know, able to kind of tolerate that, the fact that it's gonna, it's gonna be a little bit at a time. So that's kind of an overview of dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, like I said, it was, it was created for this very sort of specialized patient population, but since then, it's expanded to be used in a whole bunch of different contexts. And I think it's a very powerful um, intervention because I think it, it really does uh, give people a roadmap for changing things like emotions, which sometimes can seem so out of control. You know? um, do we have questions, Joanne? You know, uh, what, uh, with addiction, some people are using that for self-medication. Mm -hmm. We have these issues and I guess that just compounds your yes. problems. Yes. Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting and important to think about when when there is when addiction is present, you know, um, whether it's substance abuse, whether it's, you know, there's a, there's a number of different gambling addiction, you know, it represents an attempt to numb emotions, you know. So why does the person need to numb emotions or to control, control their mind? You know, they, they need to numb their emotions because some, there's something wrong there. The other skills have not been developed, for example, you know? Um, so yeah, I think, you know, when people talk about self-medicating, and that's one of the reasons why it can be so important for people to start taking medication, for example, for, you know, mental health issues because that will allow them actually to learn the skills, you know, to learn the skills to, you know, to be able to manage their feelings and their thoughts, you know, in, in a better way. And the other question I had, the examples you use are 
people who tend to outburst? Mm -hmm. What about the people who stifle everything? And then yes. finally it builds up till they explode. Absolutely. And that's one thing that she talks about. Part of like one of the, like in the borderline personality disorders with clients that have that, a lot of them inhibit, like you said, they inhibit emotions until they can't stand it anymore and then there's a crisis generating situation. The reason for the inhibiting is that still shows an inability to skillfully deal with emotions. It's like the only way I know how to deal with an emotion is to pretend I don't have it and to stuff it down, you know? That's still, it's gonna create these problems down the road. So that she would absolutely say that's also a symptom of emotional dysregulation. Yeah. How do you deal with a person that doesn't recognize that they have that problem? Well, you know, here's the thing that's, um, it's very difficult. Um, to be honest, my, I had a stepmother who had borderline personality disorder, and she would do things that were very upsetting. There was a lot of crisis-generating behavior. And things got so bad at a certain point that my dad would actually have to call the police to get her removed from his property. Mm -hmm. And if you had asked her, do you recognize how out of control you are? I don't know that she was really able to do that because she was just such a serious problem. You know what I mean? Um, what they say oftentimes with people with borderline personality disorder are, you know, is that things have to get so bad in their life that they begin to realize that they've got to make some changes. So it's a little bit like the recovery community. There's something about people have to lose, oftentimes have to lose a lot before they change. Like the way I described it is, you know how in, um, when the Israelites are in Egypt, there's not one plague, there's 10. It takes 10 plagues for change to happen. And unfortunately, that's the case with a lot of people. The one thing I would say, though, if you know somebody who has this very, just very emotionally vulnerable, the one thing that you can do for them is you can be that validating environment they may not have experienced before. What I mean by that is recognize that the feelings that they feel are different from the feelings the way that you would feel in that same context. So, you know, you know what I'm saying? So that you can say to the person, I can see that you're really in distress, as opposed to, you need to snap out of it. Because they're not gonna be able to snap out of it. And they really are in distress. But once you begin to have those conversations with someone about what they're really feeling, then you can begin you know, slowly, slowly to start problem solving the, the experience with them. Um, but that's something that's a very positive thing that you can do for someone, is to take their feelings seriously and not to invalidate them or to minimize them or to, or to pretend that emotions are easy to get rid of. I think a lot of times we do that because we want to believe that, and yet we know for ourselves it's really not true. But yet when somebody else has an emotional display, we want to pretend that it's very easy to, you know, to get control of that. So. It seems that if somebody does have whatever their emotion is, um, the, the kindest thing to do is to recognize it. Yes. And say, wow, you seem so upset. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that helps them and it helps you to, yeah, they're upset, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. to yourself. It, it just seems sometimes, I mean, we all tend to, when someone's getting really emotional, like, huh, at least I have denial is yeah. my favorite form of anything. Right. But, right. <laughs> right. but when I do that, it makes it worse. But if I recognize yeah. 
what is going on. It, it says you're a human being and you're having this problem. Right. Right. It, yet you're very angry. And I, and then sometimes steps can be taken then. Yeah. You can be the friend or the person yeah. that can be yeah. a little helpful. But if you try to deny it. And I think like one of her Linehan's central <laughs> observations or conclusion is when you approach someone else, don't assume that their emotional life is the same as yours. So something that wouldn't upset you, just because it wouldn't upset you doesn't mean that it's not, you know, I mean, people are wired differently. And, you know, and really having the empathy for that is huge. Um, you know, one of the things that I used to talk about my staff when I had sort of young staff um, who were just getting used to doing pastoral care and things like that, and I may have said this to you already, so I'm, I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but think of the sort of the biblical model of the host and the stranger. Encounter people as you're the host, they're the stranger. Well, biblically, what do you owe the stranger as, as a host? Hospitality. Hospitality. Well, what does hospitality consist of for a stranger? It's making sure that you take care of their basic human needs, which you share, but then at a certain point, the conversation turns to, tell me about the strange land that you're coming from, okay? Because they're a stranger, you know? And I think sometimes when we recognize that we encounter, we're encountering people all the time who are, who are that stranger from the strange land, and maybe the best way of encountering them is with curiosity and empathy, as opposed to projecting onto them this idea that they're exactly like we are, you know? So, anything else? All right. Well, thank you so much for, for coming. Oh, Susan. Oh, Susan has announcements.